Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we're at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 27 for March of 2018. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about shows that continued on without a principal character, and our show topics tonight include a look at two new series, the BBC and Hulu co-production of the pre-apocalyptic Hard Sun and Stargate Origins on MGM's Stargate Command streaming service. Yeah, lately we've been doing a lot of streaming service discussions, and this one gets pretty obscure. But for one thing, March is pretty empty of new shows, so we had to really hunt around a little bit. I think we found a couple of, of gems here, and at the very least, really good shows that we can discuss. In, a, in other words, they're very discussable for a podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. And as you mentioned, Hard Sun maybe is falling under the radar for a lot of people. But I think once you hear about it, once you watch the first episode, I think your mind will be changed. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. And our interview this month is with Nazanin Boniati, who plays Claire on Counterpart. And usually our interviews are spoiler free. I just want to give you a warning that this one is not because there was a big turn for her character in the show. So make sure you're caught up with Counterpart if you're going to enjoy our interview today. And if you're following us on Facebook and Twitter, we earlier announced that we were doing a Game of Thrones interview. And we did. Right, Dave? We had a lot of fun talking to Thomas Shilesny, the visual effects supervisor of that show. But we had so much fun that it went like a half an hour. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I learned so much from him about the production of a show like Game of Thrones. And, and of course, it, it falls into a lot of the sh other shows that we watch. Right. Visual effects supervisors are always fun to talk to. We talked to uh, Adam Stern back in the day for Continuum, and he was a lot of fun, too. But uh, we're going to release that one as a bonus episode this month. So you'll see that in a week or so after this one comes out. So you'll be able to enjoy uh, the full half hour of our discussion with Thomas Shalesny. So there are spoilers in all of our segments for episodes that have aired, including the interview. So if you need to skip around to avoid certain topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Shows missing principal character. Three minutes. Hard Sun. 1707. Stargate Origins. 3243. Counterpart. 5731. All right, and our discussion topic is a really cool one that you came up with, Dave. Shows that have survived the loss of a lead character. And uh, as we're recording this, I'm racking my brain as to how I'm going to title this in the podcast title <laughs> in a pithy short way that will fit. But <laughs> it's a really cool topic because it's actually happened a few times where a show will continue despite the fact that one of its main protagonists or antagonists 
left the show. Yeah, and there are a lot of reasons why the actor or the character decides to leave. Sometimes it's the uh, actor wants to do other things and not be committed to a series. But at first glance, it seemed to be an easy choice. You know, I didn't think we were going to have a difficult time finding six. But you know, as we dug into it, there were a lot of shows that had... Now, you mentioned lead characters, and, and I think that goes beyond the one or two. I mean, you certainly have a lot of characters that are critical to the show, are in virtually every episode. I think they fall into the category we're speaking of as well. Right. Any any main character, of course, it could include some supporting roles, but someone who's been on the show a lot. So we did find some, and actually the, our listeners found some too, so we'll share some of those with you at the end of our discussion. And I'll start with The Vampire Diaries, which is not a show I watched, but I was searching around for some answers to this uh, topic that we came up with. And it turns out that Elena, who is played by Nina Dobrev on that show, in 2015, she confirmed via Instagram that she would be leaving the show after its sixth season. So that was quite established at the time. And at the end of the season, her character Elena was left asleep in a coma and hidden so that Damon, played by Ian Somerhalder, could eventually reunite with her. And then following her exit, the series went on for two more seasons. So this was one of the more successful departures. But, you know, just leaving her in a coma felt sort of left in the lurch. But with season eight marking the show's last, it did only last those two seasons. And Dobrev returned to appear in the show's 2017 finale episode. So that kind of gave the fans some nice closure to be reunited with someone who'd been gone for a couple seasons. Yeah. Well, my first choice is a show that I watched. And and when I found out that Fox Mulder played by David Duchovny was going to leave the X-Files, I won't say at this point I was shocked because early in the series, Duchovny remarked in an interview that if he had known how popular the show was going to become, he would have never taken the role, which of course left a lot of fans stunned on the one hand because you've got this great role why would you even say (laughs) that but he certainly changed his approach to that you know in the interim and I think he he chalks that up to a little bit of immaturity on his part and and he certainly returned to embrace the character but he left after season seven he was abducted by aliens that's how they basically explained it he appeared sporadically in season eight and was only in the season nine finale, which was the final season before the reboot, if you will. Although he did write and direct the episode William. So interestingly, contractually, Gillian Anderson was forced to remain. They added Annabeth Gish and Robert Patrick to the cast as agents Reyes and Doggett, respectively. And, you know, for me, while it was never quite the same, it was still enjoyable the fact that Fox Mulder wasn't dead always left you know, the possibility that he would return someday. But I think most fans accept that it was still the X-Files. It was still enjoyable, but it just certainly wasn't the same without Fox Mulder. Right. So it's nice to have him back in a sense with the reboot. <laughs> and uh, well, my other two choices that I'm going to do are both shows that we talked about last month in our spellcasters discussion so that's that was an interesting juxtaposition there and so my next one is from charmed i think we even mentioned this that shannon doherty left that show 
the first three seasons of the WB's fantasy supernatural drama focused on the three Hallowell sisters, Prue, who was played by Shannon Doherty, Piper, and Phoebe. And Doherty left the show after season three with her character Prue getting killed off in the season finale. So it was quite uh, absolute. (laughs) There was no uh, gray area here. And their long-lost half-sister, Paige Matthews, played by Rose McGowan, took her place within The Power of Three from season four onwards. And Rose McGowan's uh, character proved very popular with audiences, helping the show go on for a total of five more seasons. And I'm not sure that's necessarily true of Shannon Doherty, who always had a little bit of trouble uh, on set, whether it be with Charmed or Beverly Hills 90210 or whatever. So that is not a surprising departure. So kind of an interesting one here because the series concluded after the end of season eight. And although they mourned their sister's loss, they were able to go on for quite a number of seasons without her. So are you saying you watched 90210? Is that what I'm supposed to glean from that? (laughs) I may have been in the room when uh, certain female acquaintances were watching it. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, we are going to talk about Stargate origins tonight as part of the longer discussion, but my second choice is from Stargate SG-1 when Richard Dean Anderson decided to leave the show and, and certainly his character of Jack O'Neill. And, and it's always interesting when you talk about Stargate SG-1 and try to figure out, well, is it uh, Captain O'Neill, Major O'Neill, Colonel O'Neill, General O'Neill? And, and the same thing with Samantha Carter, because over the course of 10 seasons, their ranks certainly increased. But he left after season eight of 10 seasons to spend more time with his young daughter. So they were able to kind of wiggle things around a little bit because Don Davis, who played the major general wanted to leave for health reasons. So they promoted Jack O'Neill to general. He appeared as a guest star in seasons nine and 10, not very often, just a handful of times, but what they did was added Ben Browder, right? As Lieutenant Cam Mitchell, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Cam Mitchell, Bo Bridges as Major General Hank Landry, and Claudia Black as Val Amalderon to ostensibly fill the void. And I think they really did a nice job. It was very fortunate. I mean, they had the the base characters. Amanda Tapping was still there as, as Samantha Carter. But these three really did fill a void. And, and while I certainly miss Jack O'Neill, I really loved Cam Mitchell Hank Landry and Vala. So it was especially good for Farscape fans to see Ben Browder and Claudia Black again. Oh, no doubt. And there's a certain attitude that Jack O'Neill carried with him throughout the series. And Ben Browder's characters, again, whether Farscape or Stargate, he sort of has the same feel to it. So, you know, we did still have that. But yeah, there's no way that you could uh, really replace Richard Dean Anderson in any fashion, but you know, such as it is. All right. Well, my last one is going to be from once upon a time. This was a tough choice because I I was trying to find one that lasted a little bit longer past the departure. But the more I looked into the ending for once upon a time, the more I realized this is a pretty cool uh, story here because there are a huge number of people, regular characters who left the show and it still went on for a seventh season and actually was pretty well received as a final season, even though they weren't able to go on past that. So Jennifer Goodwin, who played Snow White, Josh Dallas, Prince Charming, 
Emily DeRaven, who played Belle, Jared Gilmore, who played the young Henry, Rebecca Mater, who was a fan favorite as Zelina, the Wicked Witch of the West, and of course, Jennifer Morrison herself, Emma Swan. I mean, when you lose the main character like Emma, plus all those others, and, and you know, Snow White and, and some of the others had been there since the very beginning, that's a big deal. <laughs> and yet somehow they did it. It was part of a soft reboot, which had Regina, who we talked about in the Spellcaster episode last month, was basically leaving Storybrooke for Hyperion Heights with a grown-up Henry, different actor, not very successful one at that. But they were able to, in the course of telling this new story, give Captain Swan and Rumple and Belle these happy endings with their significant others. And it was kind of satisfying for the fans. I mean, even when uh, Rebecca Mater, who I don't think left the show, she didn't leave the show because she wanted to or any contractual thing. She actually said that, you know, they came to her. They said they were going in a different direction. They were doing this soft reboot. And so she kind of understood and agreed and said, you know, I loved playing this character, Zelina, but, you know, we left on amicable terms and they were able to wrap up the show. They probably wanted to go past season seven, but it kind of was like one giant epilogue season seven in a way from what I can tell. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I guess they still had Robert Carlyle as a yeah. Stilskin. Yeah, they still had some of the main characters. And of course, Regina herself was central. But uh, it, it had some faults, of course. Um, but it gave some closure to some of the characters and was able to make some of their own stories, which just didn't take off. Okay. All right. Well, my final choice is a character from Game of Thrones. And, and okay, you can argue it's not science fiction, and I would agree with you. But I, I Well, think- we've talked about plenty of fantasies and horror yeah. shows on this podcast exactly so i'm going to talk about the fall of ned stark played by sean bean in truly one of the most shocking scenes in all of television i mean certainly my experience the season one finale okay yeah they've got him up on the uh platform they're ready to behead him but uh, something's gonna happen he, it's ned stark for crying out loud he's the main <laughs> character and what his beheading did was really set the tone, I think, for all of cable television because they saw what the juggernaut of Game of Thrones was able to do, which is basically take your main character out of play at the end of the first season, establish that the stakes are high for everybody, and that trend has, of course, continued throughout the series. So while it was shocking, I think it really sold people on Game of Thrones as, as the important show that it's become because no one's safe. Yeah, it kind of was the reputation that used to belong to Joss Whedon and him always killing off his characters was supplanted by how <laughs> over the top this uh, season one death was. Sean Bean, and now Sean Bean has a, has a reputation for getting killed off all the time in, in whatever show he appears in, so... Yeah, pretty remarkable stuff. And and I like how each one of the examples we talked about had a different reason, a different flavor of for the departure and different results in some cases. So that it was really they really ran the gamut of, of uh scenarios that you could have picked. Right. And I suppose anybody that had read the books from the Game of Thrones series would Yeah. Well, I knew that was gonna happen. Well, <laughs> exactly. okay, well, I didn't read the books. So. All right, so uh, let me share also a couple of responses that 
we saw on Facebook to this question of shows that went on without principal characters. Corey says, it's always not so fond when shows go on without a main actor, like when David Duchovny wasn't on X-Files or Richard Deed Anderson and Amanda Tapping weren't on Stargate. So they, he honed in on those as well. Kevin Batchelder had a new answer, though. He said, when Nicole Bahari left Sleepy Hollow, she played Abby, in season three, I said I was done with the show. I adored season one of Sleepy Hollow, and I'd put that season up against any season one of any other genre show. And the show did lose its way, but there was still some good stuff there. However, they did a surprisingly good job of reinventing the show in season four. And even without Abby, I actually enjoyed it. It wasn't the same show, but it was still entertaining. So that was a good one we could have picked. And then Linda chimed in with Castle. She says, well, I guess that doesn't count, especially since, you know, the show did not go on after their main characters departed, right? Correct. And then she said, okay, well, instead I'll pick Blake's Seven from the UK because apparently uh, Blake decided he didn't want to be in it after season two, which I didn't realize. And, you know, that is a show that just keeps cropping up time after time. I might hear about it once or twice a year, but... Michael, this has been like four or five years. I mean, I'm going to have to watch this show at some point. <laughs> oh, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> and then finally, Bonita Butler mentioned Shannon Doherty's character on Charmed, but she also chimed in with Denise Crosby, who left Star Trek. And that was one of the devastating departures for me, Star Trek The Next Generation, because her character was definitely one of my favorites, although she did have some return appearances on the show. But um, she was definitely missed when she left Tasha Yar. All right, so thanks for contributing to that discussion. And now we're going to share with you some interesting shows that may have slipped under your radar. That was the original mission statement for Sci-Fi Fidelity. So I'm happy to be talking about Hard Sun, which is a British import from BBC One that has just started airing on Hulu. Now, I don't know, has Hulu dropped all of them or at once or are they doing their normal thing where they dole them out one at a time? I haven't I haven't looked at their, at that yet, but we're only going to talk about the premiere, right? Yeah, I think they're doing them one at a time. Obviously, all six have aired on the BBC and you know I'm sure you can find them out there if you would like to. <laughs> yeah, you certainly can zoom through it. Six episodes is worth anyone's time and we can probably attribute some of the very quick pacing action-packed nature of this show to the fact that there are only six episodes because you got to tell the story quickly. But basically it has two detectives with opposing viewpoints, uh, definitely opposites, uh, according to the showrunner, uh, when he conceived of these characters, and they're forced to work together in a pre-apocalyptic criminal world. Now that's not a term you hear too often, pre-apocalyptic, but it did come up in an earlier um podcast an earlier sci-fi fidelity episode where we talked about cbs's salvation which was all about a meteor headed towards earth and what that did to society and and the government organization that was central to that show similar thing here it's like a cop show with the pre-apocalyptic scenario where the world is about to end in five years and only certain people know about it so it sets up this whole societal shift because of it now, Neil Cross, I didn't l realize this until I started doing my research on the show. He's the creator of Luther. Have you ever seen that show, Dave? I have not. I'm aware of it. My wife loves it. I, I would venture to say if I asked her if it was her favorite show, she'd say yes. Uh, it's a cop show, a crime show. And so you can see how that might fit into this show as well. But he came up with this concept of a world about to end while listening to David Bowie's Five Years which is on the Ziggy Stardust album. 
And that makes this now the third British series to be inspired or named after a Bowie song, including Life on Mars, <laughs> another nominally science fiction show, and Ashes to Ashes, which is also uh, set, I think, in the 80s. So those are period pieces. But I thought that was interesting that David Bowie, his five years song, and if you look at the lyrics for that song, it really talks about what would happen if everyone on Earth found out that the planet only had five years left. Would you care about morals? Would you care about you know what was right and what was wrong? Uh, and that's the core of this show. Yeah, and you know, you and I talked about whether or not to cover this show because it is nominally science fiction, but I, I think it's an important show within the science fiction genre because of the pre-apocalyptic nature. And just as you say, how will people react to that knowledge? And of course, at the beginning of the show, not that many people are aware of it, but it certainly becomes part and parcel to the entire series. All right. And this extinction level event appears to be being kept secret by the government, probably MI5, to avoid wide, widespread panic. But there might be more to it than that. And it seems to involve solar flares and natural disasters that are being predicted uh, are going to destroy the Earth. Now, central characters are DCI Charlie Hicks, played by James Sturgis, and DI Elaine Renko, played by Agnes Dane, who stumble upon this information while investigating the death of a hacker who appears to have jumped out a window but may have had some help or at least uh, it was accidental during an argument. So like we said, is this science fiction? Well, Life on Mars and Salvation were, and certainly Counterpart, which we talked about last month and are having our interview with this month, also has at its core a science fiction concept, and then they just build a cop show or a spy thriller or whatever around it. So I think that's a cool new concept for science fiction to go in is, is just build off that seed. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to do it all the time, but... Yeah, as long as the the core concept is interesting enough to build off of and have societal shifts, then you get, you know, Black Mirror scenarios where it's what happens to people in those situations that is interesting. So the main uh, criminal case that's being investigated is this dead hacker, Lloyd Hammond, whose computer is completely exposed when they find his dead body. And coincidentally enough... Lots of kiddie porn on there. It's like never in a million years would a hacker leave his computer completely password not protected. And he's also missing a flash drive from around his wrist. And they very quickly hone in on his one and only acquaintance, Sonny Ramachandran, who is another hacker. But the thing they have in common is they're both kind of these conspiracy theorists, which, of course, plays right into why they would be the ones to discover this information, stumble upon it in their hacking explorations. And uh, Ramachandran, his specialty is selling whatever information he finds to financial folks that might be able to benefit from some inside information. And so he tries to sell this, and that's how the detectives are able to catch up with him. Now, what's interesting is that because the government is behind all this uh, secrecy, the cops are called off. They're like, stop your surveillance, and just drop it. But of course they don't because <laughs> they are who they are. And they quickly realize when the witnesses that they've gathered up, both the person from the uh, finance company and the hacker Ramachandran shot through the back window of their car. Renko says, 
Jesus, what is on that flash drive? Right. And, and that becomes the core of the show. And, and, and as you said, the fascinating thing is watching these two detectives stay on this case because they know there's something going on here and they're not fighting a criminal element. They're fighting MI5. Exactly. But the thing is, they're very complex characters themselves. So uh, there's some subplots that go on as well. But what's cool is, is as they get rounded up by the MI5 agents, uh, one of my favorite scenes is where Hicks has to shout out, break some windows of cars to set the alarms off and shout out to people as they wake up and turn on their lights. These agents are trying to kill us. Remember their faces, <laughs> you know, and uh, just really cool scene because it's a very large group of men that are after them. And the uh, wheels are just starting to turn for these two because they're brand new partners. And in fact, that sets up the two subplots that are really cool. I really, uh, I haven't seen as many episodes as you have, Dave, but uh, the subplots are really kind of almost as compelling as that main government conspiracy plot with the uh, hard sun or the solar flare incident that's going to happen because uh turns out Renko Elaine Renko is being assigned to Hicks as his partner because the guy's a little shady <laughs> you might say yeah and the fact that she's partnered with him so that she can investigate him right and it's really something that's kept secret at first but there's no reason to because they both know exactly what is going on. Nobody has any illusions that the police chief brought Renko on for any other reason, although he denies it, <laughs> to, than to uh, find out what's up with Hicks because they think maybe the death of his former partner might have not been an accident and then Hicks might actually be directly involved, not the least of which is because he's having an affair with his ex-partner's wife. So uh, obviously we might suspect him as viewers as well. But what's cool is that Renko has set up in the course of uh, before she became his partner, has already set up a murder board of sorts up in this attic area above her drop ceiling in the hotel she's staying in. And I thought that was a really cool visual where she was able to go up into the ceiling and you know, put up all the different facts that she's learned, including the fact that right before his partner died, People heard the phrase, it is not true, it is not, and then a gunshot. So I can't wait to see how that plays out because clearly there's more than one crime being investigated here. Yeah, and I'm going to shut up right now. Uh, okay. <laughs> Dave has seen, how many episodes have you seen? Of uh, I've seen all six. You've seen all six? Okay, I've seen two. But, uh, you know, Hicks is not without his uh, problems because right at the very beginning of episode one, we see him robbing the criminal organization that the police are about to take down. So his figures, I guess he figures, you know, why not take some of their money before the SWAT team shows up? And so on the one hand, he's robbing criminals. So he's bad. On the other hand, he's seen giving the money to his dead partner's widow, which could be seen as a good thing if he weren't having an affair with him. Yeah. So with her rather. So, uh, yeah. So you can never really decide where he's coming from because even Renko genuinely believes when she talks to him, that he does have great affection for his partner that died, Alex Butler. So you have to wonder what, what's the deal there and, and how much do we know and how much are we jumping to conclusions and how much is the police chief and Ranko jumping to conclusions about Hicks. But Hicks, you know, he strong arms the hotel uh, clerk 
by you know saying, I know you're an illegal, you're in the country illegally, so now you have to let me into this girl's room. And he searches her room to see if he, she is indeed investigating him. And he finds a note in the hotel safe that says, hello and fuck you. <laughs> Which I think is a great little perceptive uh, foresight of Renko to know that he would be searching her place. And Renko is an interesting character too, from the standpoint of she's seen at the very beginning of the episode being attacked by a young man with a knife. And it's a really brutal scene. He douses her in gasoline She's bleeding from her arms where she had to try to hold up her arms to defend herself, but just got cut by the knife. And she just barely escapes by crawling out of the apartment before it blows up. And it's only later when she's visiting this young man in the psych ward and she says, hello, Daniel. And he answers, hello, mom, that we realize, oh, my God, what warped kind of relationship is this? Well, yeah, especially when you look at the ages of the two characters, because, you know, Ranko, I mean, and, and of course, my wife saw me watching it on my laptop. She goes, I know her. She's a model. Like, okay. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, what she's maybe 35 at the most. And, and of course, her son's got to be at least 21. Yeah, they're definitely close in age. And that does not go unnoticed by Hicks. But I have to mention that way that that comes up the reason why they're so close in age is when the shit really hits the fan because this show in the first episode is high action all the way they don't pull any punches there's lots of violence not necessarily blood and gore although there is some blood it's just you're constantly on the edge of your seat whether it's the large groups of men in pursuit of them from the mi5 uh, you can actually see the MI5 agents burning Hicks' car and putting bodies in barrels to cover up the witnesses that they've gotten rid of. And even after Hicks makes the discovery and looks at the the hard sun documents that this hacker has gathered, he immediately wants to call his wife because he realizes that they're not long for this world. And I thought it's, in, it's very interesting that whoever looks at this these documents immediately knows what they mean almost a little bit too quickly where they automatically realize the repercussions and Hicks is pretty devastated when he sees that the earth is going to be toast in five years, but who should answer? Not his wife, but an MI5 agent known as Grace Morgan played wonderfully by Nikki Amuka bird who fans of Luther probably recognize, but what a great villain she is and whether or not she stays a villain or not, but she, she is really ruthless in trying to keep this secret by threatening his family and tries to get him to turn in the flash drive before uh, she has to dispatch his pregnant wife and his young daughter. So really kind of a brutal scene there, but it sets up the climactic end scene, which is this fight between Renko and Hicks which is about as brutal of a fight as I've ever seen on the banks of the Thames, didn't you think? Well, I did. And one of the things that, again, strikes you when you watch this is that they don't carry weapons outside of these batons and Renko with her brass knuckles. They don't carry firearms. Yeah, that's interesting <laughs> because, uh, yeah, the brass knuckles become Renko's uh, go-to weapon, in fact. And you almost get the sense that when she beats him to a pulp, and she does beat him quite badly, that there's a violent streak inside this woman. She probably overdid it a bit. 
by basically trying to talk him down from trying to give up the flash drive because she says, if you do that, we're dead. And so is your family. There's no point in turning this in. We have to expose this now. And she immediately takes the documents to the Paladin News Group, which is uh, obviously a member of the media. And what's funny is that this kind of hints at what's next. And I'm not going to spoil what happens in episode two, but there are immediate repercussions for Ranko taking this to the press because it sets up this scenario where some people will believe what's in those documents and some people won't because, you know, some people just think it's a, a conspiracy theory. It's, it's just a bunch of bunk, but those who do believe it may be considered fanatics, maybe considered conspiracy theorists like the hackers that were caught up in this crime, but they start to act differently and treat society differently and morality and ethics just go out the window. And that's what makes this a really cool crime show. Even if you end up having a crime of the week now and again during the six episodes, it really ends up being an exploration of what would happen if you knew the world was about to end. Yeah. I mean, I can't recommend the show highly enough. It it is just wonderful. The acting is great. And and as, as you indicated earlier, the pace is very quick. It has to be. There's only six episodes. Yeah, it's breakneck, (laughs) literally. (laughs) All right. Well, why don't we move on to our second show? And that is Stargate Origins. And Outside of the Star Trek franchise, I really feel there's nothing else like the Stargate franchise. I mean, we've got Universe, we've got Atlantis, and then, of course, the juggernaut SG-1. So now to have Stargate Origins, I think most Stargate fans were just ecstatic. And so far, so good. Now, the difference here, though, is that MGM owns Stargate at this point. Yeah. And they've gone to a streaming service, as everybody seems to be doing these days, called Stargate Command. And for, I believe it's like 20 bucks for, I, I don't think it's for a full year. I think it might be six months, but you, you can check that out. But you get access to the Stargate movies, SG-1, Universe, Atlantis, and then, of course, Origins. Now, these are short-form episodes, so I hear it often advertised as 10-minute episodes. Well, when you take out the one minute of credits at the end, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're really anywhere from 7 to 11 minutes, which is fine. Episodes 101 to 103 dropped on February 15th, 104 and 105 on February 22nd, uh, 106 and 7 on March 1st, and then we're recording on Thursday, the 8th of March, and the final three are set to drop tonight. So put together, you've got about an episode and a half of television, which it is what it is. Now, one of the issues that Stargate fans immediately have to come to terms with is, A, Dean Devlin and Brad Wright really don't have anything to do with this incarnation of Stargate. Or Robert Cooper, for that matter. Or, or right. So the second thing is that there is some heavy-duty retconning oh, taking yes. place. <laughs> and you have to make your choice. I either buy into this new approach or I sit with my arms folded and say, nope, <laughs> not me. Well, that's not my approach. I'm going to be open-minded and, you know, we'll talk about the retconning in a second, but. Well, I thought the whole time that it was just going to be 
something where their minds would get erased or something that would prevent it from being a retcon, but such was not the case. Right. So just to remind you, the original film came out in 1994 with the Stargate being unearthed in Giza in 1928, and then SG-1 followed from 1997 to 2007. So one of the first things I notice about Stargate Origins, the actors are all virtual unknowns. I don't feel like I recognized anybody from anything, and, and that's okay. The production values are are pretty good, but not up to Stargate standards that we're used to with Universe, Atlantis, and SG-1, but that's okay as well. But the retconning that takes place, I mean, the major point that, that I think gets fans' attention right away regards the discovery and activation of the Stargate in Egypt, because... In the original movie and, of course, all the series that follow, it wasn't until Daniel Jackson decoded the seventh symbol that the gate becomes active in the movie. And that's not what happens here. It actually becomes active in 1938, as we'll talk about in a second. So, I mean, where do you fall on this retconning thing? Oh, I was really against it because, like I said, I thought they were going to undo it somehow where Catherine Lang would... Langford would forget all about it and they'd lose the notes because yeah, the symbol, the little triangle with the circle on top that was supposed to symbolize earth. I mean, that was a big journey to get to that point and to undo it. So haphazardly kind of bothered me a little. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm going to stay with an open mind. I mean, is origins an attempt to revive the series of eventually transitioning it to a standard 42 to 45 minute episode? Well, that's a good question. And in fact, if we can, what I'd like to do is insert a little commentary from Joseph Malozzi, who also was an executive producer on the Stargate series, uh, SG-1, Atlantis, and Universe. He talks about, in an interview that I had with him, about you know what Stargate Origins would be versus what MGM could do with a standard-length show and whether or not Origins was the right approach or not. So let's listen to what he had to say, and then we'll follow it up with our own discussion. Well, I'd heard that MGM was looking to bring back Stargate. And I heard they were going to do so by testing out this uh, streaming platform with this web series, Stargate Origins. You know, uh, you know, as or- Origins rolled down and, it, you know, there were, there were kind of a mixed response. And, and I mean, to be honest with you, longtime fans can be somewhat fickle. But I figured there had to be a way to measure fan interest in a fourth series beyond, let's say, a willingness to subscribe to the streaming platform or a uh, positive, necessarily positive response to a web series. And MGM really faces a choice right now on how to proceed with a new series. They could either do a continuation to a universe or Atlantis or one of the pre-established shows, but it's unlikely that they're going to go that way simply because then they'll just be catering to longtime fans and looking to bring in new fans. Uh, Another way to go, which I suspect they would maybe lean towards, is just doing a reboot and taking the film as a jumping off point and just doing a whole new Stargate. And, you know, I guess you could do that with this with a show that's maybe 30 years old and, and, and fans don't remember. But Stargate is still pretty fresh and it still has a pretty vibrant fan base. And essentially by rebooting, what you're doing is you're wiping out 17 years of TV history. So, you know, what I'm proposing is the best of both worlds and, you know, creating an in-canon 
fourth series that really introduces new new viewers, brings them in on the ground floor, let's say, with an, like a new team. But you, you have kind of an, an established world and order and rules that were created by Brad Wright and Robert Cooper. So essentially, you know, I'm suggesting a show that new viewers can can step into and enjoy and, you know, not be confused by the mythology and, and you know, essentially discover just like any new fan. So, yeah, Dave, should they have started with a fourth series spinoff rather than this web series that they did? Or is this just a an attempt to garner interest first? Well, I'm okay if it's an attempt to garner interest because, you know, you're not required to invest a lot of time mm-hmm. to decide whether or not you're going to stick with this this latest version. So I'm okay with it as it is. But except the money aspect of it, the fact that you're paying for it, that's a major roadblock for some people. And international fans can't have access to it, to this either, as far as I know. So I don't know. I hope that Joseph Melosi is successful. He's starting this uh, fan campaign to garner interest in a, in a fourth spinoff series that Brad Wright and Robert Cooper are involved in. Uh, in fact, I believe that fan campaign is happening March 9th, the same day this podcast is released. So we'll have to see how that turns out. Well, hopefully better than Dark Matter turned out with sci-fi, which despite the response that Joseph Melosi got with his social media (laughs) campaign, it's almost as if sci-fi was sitting there in their office with their hands over their eyes, their ears. and Yeah, he's saying MGM is going to be a very different approach than what sci-fi had. So let's uh, hope for the best. <laughs> all right, well, that's good to know. All right. So Origins opens in the Egyptian desert, 1928, which is familiar territory for us. Quickly fast forwards to 1938 and the gates now housed in a building still being studied by Dr. Paul Langford, who's played by Connor Trenier, who is, I didn't recognize him because I was not a Star Trek enterprise viewer, He was the only one I did recognize. Okay, but he played Commander Trip Tucker. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Michael Kenmore 
in Stargate Atlantis, which was another show. I only watched a few episodes, so I, I didn't know him from those. Oh, I didn't know he was in that one. Okay, cool. Yeah, but he and his daughter, Catherine, played by Australian actress Ellie Gall, are studying the Stargate. Now, as we open the series, they've lost their funding, and you know they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. I guess he, he's going to go home. We learn that she's actually been offered a job as an archivist, so she's planning to stay. But he's really no closer to figuring out what it is and what it does than when he first found it. I mean, he is an archaeologist, an Egyptologist. He's not a scientist. And he's basically at the point in his research where he's got no money and he doesn't know what he's going to do. So we learn about this British soldier, James Beale, and he's flirting with Catherine a little bit, not all that successfully, although she later on, you know, takes the bull by the horns. <laughs> but we're introduced to this group of German soldiers led by their officer, Wilhelm Brucke, and that's what really jump starts the episode and the Stargate program because he's got some drawings that he supposedly bought from a trader. And he thinks the gate is some kind of portal or door. So he's got this forward-thinking attitude that Stargate fans are like, yeah, that's it. But (laughs) my problem, I mean, is this too much of a nod to Indiana Jones and the Nazis trying to take control of a precious artifact? Oh, my gosh. It's, It's pulled right out of Indiana Jones. And not just the involvement of Nazis, but also the dynamic between James Beale and Catherine Langford is identical to some of the leading ladies and how they dealt with the rash young Indiana Jones. I mean, it was basically the exact same where they love each other, but they're also going to fight with each other the whole time. <laughs> right. Now, I, I think one of the things that Stargate fans will also notice is that the tone is quite a bit lighter yeah. than SG-1 Universe or Atlantis. And that can be a little bit off-putting at first. And and for me, on the first watch, it, it was a little bit. But as I watched it a second time, it became less important, and I, I barely noticed it. But but it's still there, and you know it is what it is. And I, you got to think that if they do move this to series, maybe they'll change the tone a little bit. And I think it's important to note that. We may be giving it a hard time, but it's definitely worth watching. In fact, the uh, nostalgia alone, especially once they get deeper into the folks on the other side of the Stargate, that's what it really starts to get interesting. And the fact that Catherine Langford, as an old woman, is a character that we see in the other series in the movie. So the fact that we get to see a younger version of her is kind of cool as a concept. Oh, yeah. And don't misunderstand. I really, really enjoy it. And... and I'm okay, as I said earlier, with the retconning. So, yeah, yeah, I I really enjoy it. So what we learn is this German, Brucke, he's got the dialing codes to activate the gate. And it doesn't take him long. No, okay, he powers the gate with the battery off his Jeep. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little bit uh, much. It's like, didn't it take a massive amount of energy in the movie and and the series? (laughs) Right. But... Regardless, he takes a team, and, and basically our, our discussion boils down to 
two groups go through the gate once it's activated. And he takes the first group along with Professor Langford, who he's got restrained, and I'm not certain why he feels the need to restrain him. He's the least dangerous person yeah. <laughs> I think I've ever seen it in television or, or film. But again, this forward thinking that Brucka has, because he sees the creators of the gates as gods, and it's not really clear how he's made these connections, although we know he's got this little notebook that he leaves behind. Catherine finds it, yeah. <laughs> Catherine finds it in the guy's pocket after she knocks him out. So how he's made all these connections isn't really clear. But once they get on the other side of the gate, and again, this is something that's familiar territory for Stargate fans, the team finds themselves in an Egyptian-looking building, that also has a dialing device, and certainly that's familiar territory as well for SG-1 fans, Brucka recognizes it because he says we have one in Berlin. So how did these get split? Uh, we assume the dialing device that's now in Berlin was paired with the Stargate that Langford finds in Egypt. Now, maybe we'll learn you know, in the series you know, how they became separated. Yeah, that that was an interesting thing that definitely was not explored in the, the other iterations. But you mentioned that this is familiar territory for Stargate fans, and it was difficult to place myself in the shoes of someone who might be seeing this for the first time. And I wonder if there are any people who would be like, I never watched Stargate, but I think I'm going to check this out and see if I can figure out what's going on. Now, I haven't seen a ton of Stargate episodes, but I certainly knew enough to see know what I was seeing. But I, I did actually get a little bit lost when I started meeting some of the inhabitants on the other side of the portal. So I'm wondering if maybe those have more meaning to people who have watched Stargate because I'm not sure it can stand totally on its own to brand new fans. And that might be a problem. Right. Is it going to cause new fans to watch origins and then say, wow, I want to go to SG one. Let me go track down season one and and which is on stargate command i mean they've got the entire library on stargate command <laughs> right so that's obviously the plan from mgm's perspective whether or not it'll work as you say is still unclear at this point but they get to this room and there are two females after one kicks a little bit of ass uh <laughs> we, we see the one that appears to be the leader and she's holding a baby and one of the questions that, that really struck me on my rewatch is whether or not this is a human baby. It, it seems to be, and there seems to be a difference of opinion as to how Ra will interpret this. So if it is, in fact, a human baby, where did it come from? Because these women appear to be, at least the one that's the leader, appears to be the Gaold. So Right, Exactly. So there is that uh, little plot detail going on. But she turns out to be Asit, played by Salome Azizi. And Langford immediately thinks they've gone to the past again. The forward-thinking Brucka realizes, no, it's not the past. It's another world. And granted, he's jumping to some conclusions that uh, we're wondering how it is that he, that he makes it. But it's also interesting that he's brought a camera woman along with him to yeah. document everything and for the Fuhrer I think they want to make sure he sees the uh, discoveries that are being made here or maybe the public at large 
Right. And I, I think at one point they're using the projector to watch film. And I'm thinking, all right, do they have like 110 <laughs> volt output here? Or uh, uh, Yeah, like some retroactive technology uh, use to yeah. uh, suspend disbelief. <laughs> but that's OK. But Catherine, you know, realizes her father's been taken through this gate and she gets Beale and his sidekick and the three of them go through to rescue her father. Now, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, she gets the book with the dialing sequence and, and, you know, she saw enough to to figure things out and they get through. And one of the other things I noticed is so you you didn't watch all of SG-1. Well, I mean, here's here's what I know enough. Like, for example, she comes through the portal and then they try to get back as they see it closes right behind them and she can't find the seventh symbol. Now, I know enough to know that the seventh symbol refers to your place of origin, where you currently are. Is that right? Correct. So is that helpful <laughs> right. to, to their plight? I guess so. Well, but, you know, and they haven't figured that out yet. And right, right. So, but, uh, you know, they've got a lot to figure out, and not the least of which is communication with the, the people they encounter. So the second group goes through, and Wasif, who is Beale's cohort, and Catherine go through the gate, find themselves in, again, this the same room of Egyptian design. The uh, female warrior comes in and, and greets them as well. And we are introduced. And, and again, this is a reintroduction for SG-1 fans of the transporter rings, which was done really well. And, and Yeah, that was in the movie, too. Yeah. So I guess what strikes me, and, and, and this would be something that I, I would hope they would address in the series, if it if it gets this far, is the ineptness of Beale. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Who's a military officer and his sidekick. I mean, number one, he can't shut up when he <laughs> needs to shut up. They fire first. It's but all of that said, the the series recovers nicely. It's it's not uh, you know something that's going to cause me to back away from the show. I think they're trying to also set up Catherine Langford as this strong female character that is out of her time period. Because, of course, historically, she wouldn't have been able to throw her weight around as much as she does. But because they want her to be that type of character, they kind of have to set up Beale as the foil for her in a way. Well, well, right. And, And she really is the only one that acts with an ounce of sense and they encounter this young man who is not Gaul. Now, they, of course, don't know that. They just know that he's a stranger from this world. But he's clearly non-threatening, yet they approach him, or I shouldn't say they, Beale approaches him with disdain, and, and you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, we don't know where the hell we are. Maybe this guy can help us. So, right. Wise up, buddy. <laughs> right. Kasuf. So he leads them across the desert. Uh, you know, we learned some details about a queen that was resurrected, which uh, seems to be Aset. And he's tr- trying to communicate. And, you know, they do the whole thing, pointing at themselves and saying their name. And they go through through all of that. But we now, you know, as we get into the later episodes, it, it kind of goes back and forth between Langford and the Nazis who are being held captive though we don't really know by whom at this point. But I, I love the contrast because despite the fact that he's imprisoned, Brucka 
feels that this is a great adventure. And, and of course, he's right. It is. Langford's just happy Catherine isn't along for the ride. Well, sorry to disappoint <laughs> you, but... <laughs> She's farther than you are. And and I think the, another key point that really comes up is when Wasif gets mortally wounded, it seems like, yeah, and they pull out the healing wand. So uh, definitely the culture is being explored in a greater way than maybe would have been done had we not introduced it this way because it's, it seems to be following a lot of the same principles that the movie or the beginning of SG one might have had it gone in a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. Along with Catherine's necklace, which, you know, they recognize as coming from Ra, And then, then of course they apologize and defer to her. And, and, and as you said, that was certainly something from the movie, but Langford and Brucka show films of Hitler and the massive following he's accumulated. And now we're into this situation that, Asset needs more slaves, and you know it seems as if this is going to evolve into two groups: the Nazis and the Gauld helping each other. Because obviously, we know they can travel back and forth through the gate. So we now have to hold that in the back of our minds: is it going to go down that road? But but certainly, that's something that that's addressed, and we end up though coming back to the baby and i i really think the baby is going to be pivotal i don't know how yet but there's something about it that just is really i think at the heart of everything that's going on on this side of the gate and i think it's interesting that this podcast is probably being listened to by people who have seen those last couple of episodes that we haven't seen yet and maybe know the answer to that i wonder how they're going to wrap it up or whether they're going to leave some things hanging for for future storytelling. Because with a web series, you would think they would wrap it up, but I find myself thinking maybe they won't. Yeah. I mean, if you are a Stargate fan and you can get past the retconning, go for it. It's fun. I, I think you're going to enjoy it. And I don't know what the plans of MGM are for the series. I can't believe they're going to reboot SG-1 or Universe or any of that, although Universe could have had another season, but hey, (laughs) that's just me. Well, I think uh, like Joseph Malozzi once, I think they're going to probably see if they can maybe do a fourth spinoff, do another entry in the franchise, just like Star Trek has done, and continue from there and maybe even build a brand such that Joseph Malozzi can bring a Dark Matter miniseries back in and start bringing things other than Stargate, other sci-fi properties could be built on this streaming service, especially with the unique pay model that they have where it's just 20 bucks flat fee for a, a chunk of time, plus the huge back catalog for people who might not have otherwise decided to go after Stargate SG-1 or, or Atlantis or Universe, which are eminently rewatchable <laughs> for sure. So a very interesting thing. I can't wait to see. I, w- I was definitely willing to pony up the, the 20 bucks personally. Yeah. So yeah. Guess who was in the most recent episode of The X-Files? Who? Roger Cross. <laughs> Speaking of dark matter, well, it's not even a dark matter segue that you made there. It could just be just about any show. <laughs> and we've talked many times about Roger Cross. It's like what He's has... everything. Actually, he was in three or four episodes of The X-Files in the first oh, yeah. incarnation of it. That's right. As different characters. Yeah, interesting. Because he can do that, you know. Yes, he can. <laughs> So, yeah, definitely Stargate 
is definitely something that could be built off of in this age of reboots and revivals. And I hope that ends up being the direction it goes, even with this humble beginning. But we did talk about Counterpart last month, and we were fortunate enough to get a follow-up interview with one of the characters who has had quite a change in episode seven of season one. Nazanin Boniadi is perhaps best known prior to Counterpart as CIA analyst Farah Shirazi on seasons three and four of Homeland. And she also portrayed Nora, a relatively long-standing love interest for Neil Patrick Harris's Barney Stinson in seasons six and seven of How I Met Your Mother. And she appeared as the notorious Adnan Salif in season three of Shonda Rhimes's hit political drama, Scandal. And now she's playing the role of Claire, whose character at first might have seemed like she was relatively minor, but she had a huge shift to take center stage in episode seven of Counterpart on Stars, which just aired this past Sunday. And we can't wait to see what comes of it uh, next week in episode eight. So here's my discussion with Nazanin Boniadi about this great turn for her character, Claire. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Nazanin Boniadi. Hi, Michael. How are you? Good, good. I appreciate you taking the time out from filming season two in Berlin to talk about Counterpart. Of course. Thanks for having me. Now, is it kind of difficult to stretch your memory back to season one when you're in the middle of filming season two? And have you been participating in live tweets and watching the show as it airs on stars? <laughs> I, I wish I could. The time difference here in Berlin won't allow me to. Um, this is the episode that I really did want to live tweet, but I will be fast asleep when it's uh, airing on the West and East Coast. So, <laughs> and, and I have a early pickup time tomorrow to go film. So I don't think it's going to be feasible, but I... I'm glad I'm talking to you about it. <laughs> well, now, uh, can you clarify for us maybe a little bit why Lotte Verbeek's character, the ringleader, as she's known, holds Claire in such high regard and how that might fit in with what we learned in this episode? Sure. Um, I think the, the, the idea behind that is that Claire is kind of the chosen one in Mira's eyes, who is the head of Indigo. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of talk at Indigo and the leaders at Indigo and, and this movement that there's sort of a murmur, an underground murmur of shadow and who shadow is and what she's been kind of entrusted to take care of and do uh, on her mission. And I think Mira, Claire being Mira's chosen one is the thing that creates this sort of reverence with the rest of the people coming over from the other side to help with this mission. And I think even Claire herself is sometimes taken aback by the effect she has on other people. I don't think she's sometimes she's caught off guard um, as, you know, as to how people respond to her. Now, Claire doesn't always seem to have that really strong conviction that, that some of the other conspirators like Pope and Lambert have. So am I correct in thinking that Claire's handling of Baldwin, for example, is meant to show your character full of doubt, regret, uncertainty, that sort of thing? Well, I think the thing to remember um, in watching episode seven is that Claire has lived several years now with Peter Quayle. And I view Indigo as sort of this brainwashing cult, so to speak. And, and you know, being in there and being having that mentality as Lambert or Pope or other people who haven't really immersed themselves in the outside world have, it's not so much that she's not dedicated to her mission. I think she's fully dedicated to the mission. 
but I think she also knows how to play this other side. And so with that comes a little bit of empathy, a very slight amount of empathy, or not empathy, but more kind of a understanding of what it is to live in Peter Quayle's world. And that doesn't take away from her loyalty to Indigo or the mission, but what it does do is it gives her a layer that someone like Lambert or Pope don't have. Now, there was something that was interesting that uh, I think you made note of on Twitter at the time, and that is that people like Baldwin and Lambert seem to feel perfectly comfortable getting undressed in front of Claire. <laughs> is that sort of meant to show her discomfort or their lack of modesty or, or both? <laughs> no, I think, I think it's, they're very comfortable in their own skin. And I think the thing about even when you watch Seven, for example, you'll see that trying to kind of catch up with Claire Quayle's life and losing her virginity, it's not something she's fully comfortable with because as you saw with the slap that Mira gave her when she started to have feelings for Spencer, young Spencer in, in, in Indigo, She's been taught that feelings, whether it's feelings of flesh or feelings of the heart, are just not supposed to happen. And so when she sees flesh or where she sees anything that might remind her of her own humanity or her own sexuality, I think she shies away from it. And it's not because of her modesty. It's more about her discomfort because she doesn't really know what to do with those feelings or those human experiences. Yeah, that's right. I mean, considering her upbringing, that makes sense. Yeah. So in sincerest form of flattery, it shows Claire mostly in a sympathetic light, except for when she has to kill her other. So how do you feel about the way that Counterpart portrays your character that the audience isn't really sure they should be rooting for you, but they kind of do anyway? I love that. I love that she isn't a one-dimensional villain. I mean, if you think about it, if you, on the outside, she should be kind of despised because she essentially is the one who is responsible for the demise or the, who is threatening all of the protagonists on the show. But the thing that makes her great is, I love this quote, one man's rebel is another man's freedom fighter. And I see her in that light. She isn't a one-dimensional villain. She's doing everything from this place of conviction because she thinks it's the right thing to do. And with regards to killing her own, her other, I think that while it might seem cold-blooded, from the vantage point of the audience where you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, well, look at her. She seems like she's filled with hate. That hate has been instilled into her from childhood. And if you watch episode seven, you'll see that she's been radicalized. And this is all she knows. She's been taught to hate. And that line that Mira says, I'm paraphrasing here, but your skin grows sick with hate. That is a powerful line because she's been conditioned to believe that this is the greatest good for the greatest number. And that's the danger of radicalization. And I love that the show is showing this sort of radicalization outside of the context of religion, because this kind of brainwashing happens throughout society and at different levels. And I think it's important to not judge people. If you really have empathy for how people's upbringings and their past, you'll see that they haven't chosen this path. It's almost like a predetermined destiny that they have. They, they really had no other choice. And this is their fate. It's tragic, but it's, it gives you a deeper understanding of the character. And that's why I think people empathize with her. Now, at the end of the episode, uh, when Quayle reveals that he's on to Claire, she says, I never had anything of my own. And it almost implies that things may be different now that she's a mother, especially mm -hmm. naming her child Spencer. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that maybe she's grown to love her life a little bit on this side, or is she playing him? 
Really good question. I think it's a little bit of both. I do think that the one weakness Claire has, I don't think anything will come in the way of her mission. The one weakness that she has is her baby. And that's the soft spot that she has because, as she says in, in episode seven, it's the one thing that only belongs to her. It's not the other Claire's. It doesn't belong to Indigo. It doesn't belong to anyone but her. That baby is hers. And I think that it's brilliant that the writers introduced this baby because otherwise she'd just be so devoted to her mission that nothing would really be able to get in her way. But here is sort of a crack in her armor. And I find that fascinating because I think, as you'll see her develop over the course of season one and season two, that is really the one thing that humanizes her and possibly change. You know, if her trajectory is ever going to change, it's that child that's going to change her. And then now you kind of hinted at my next question, which is, I was going to ask, are, are there any more twists in store for Claire or is this kind of her main hurrah in this episode for your character? I think there are more twists. Um, and I think that the beauty of this character is she's torn between these two worlds. She's very much devoted to her mission. And I don't, but the, the truth of the matter is that she's, there are elements now that draw her to this world and mainly her, her, that being her baby, but Nothing is as simple as it used to be before her baby was born. Now, what do you most enjoy about playing Claire? And do you have any traits in common with her that come across in your portrayal? (laughs) I mean, you know, she's such a fascinating character. She's by far the most complex character I've ever played. It's a very dark place to be in playing her sometimes. But what I love about her is she's human and she's, she's not a killing machine. Everything is justified in her eyes. She's not, as I said before, she's not one-dimensional. She's very multifaceted. Uh, I love her quiet strength and her resilience. Those are traits that I hope I have, and I, I draw from her a lot. But I hopefully inject some of my own into this character. And I find that that in itself is sort of therapeutic for me to play on so many levels because I learn from her and I hope she learns from me. Uh, or I inject some of my own essence into her sometimes. And she is really quite resilient at the end of the day, if you look at everything she's been through. And I think that that's something that I aspire to. Now, uh, one final question, and and maybe this also speaks to the question that I just asked. How do you feel about the fact that your heritage doesn't come into play like it has with some of your other characters that you've played in Homeland and other shows. Yeah. Do you like the fact that this show is so multinational and doesn't really explain why we've got British alongside Germans, alongside Americans and so on? Yeah. We, I mean, we live in a melting pot now, don't we? I mean, it's, it's a truly global show. It's very um, much of a melting pot. And I, I love that because especially now being in Berlin, it, there are people from all over the world who live here. And especially in that level of that international feel of it at the political level or multinational level, like because this is an organization that's sort of like the UN, uh, it's a multinational type organization. So it makes sense to me that there would be people from uh, the US and England and Germany. And But on a personal note, I when I first got the job, I spoke to Justin and I said, you know, hopefully you don't change my name because of my ethnicity to a Middle Eastern name. Because the last thing I want is, oh, she's a villain. Now she's Middle Eastern and she has a Middle Eastern name. If, if the name of the character was Claire to begin with, I'd like to just play her as Claire. 
and I'd prefer not to draw any attention to her race or ethnicity. And he said, absolutely, we don't, we don't have any intention of making this a Middle Eastern character or drawing attention to that. The beauty of this role is, yes, she's a villain, but she could really have come from any part of the world. It's not her ethnicity or race or religion that defines her. And that's very refreshing for a Middle Eastern actor to play because, you know, Hollywood does have a tendency of casting Middle Eastern actors in these villain or terrorist roles. Um, so, yes, I love playing this multifaceted villain who isn't of Middle Eastern or um, Muslim descent or identity. And and may I just say that that's refreshing as a viewer and as a critic as well. <laughs> so I'm glad to see that they did that. That's great. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for, for talking to me today about Counterpart. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for watching our show, and thanks for, for taking the time to talk to me. Okay, Nazanin Boniati, one of my favorite uh, recent interviews because she was just so nice and really had a lot of character analysis to dive in with me about Claire because all of the characters on Counterpart are so deep and complex, and Claire is certainly no exception. So very happy that we were able to catch up with her as she was filming Season two of Counterpart uh, in Berlin, because, of course, that show got ordered for seasons one and two right off the bat. So glad to know we have more of that great show. And I'm just going to say one thing for a spy. Her husband is the dumbest individual I have ever seen. (laughs) I think we're supposed to realize that, actually. (laughs) Peter Quayle. Oh, my. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So hopefully you're enjoying Counterpart and hopefully you're able to maybe check out Hard Sun and Stargate Origins, because we definitely highly recommend both of those. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We certainly hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And as for April, there are just so many great choices popping up before then, so we're going to take our time, pick just the right topics. But, you know, in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we do take suggestions for future topics. I'm always checking sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com to see if anyone is going to chime in and, and make a suggestion. But until then, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.